You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as the Daily Meditation Podcast, the Accidental Creative, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Connecticut was the fifth state to ratify the United States Constitution. It's the southernmost state in the block of states known as New England. It has about 5,500 square miles of territory and is home to about 3.5 million people, roughly half the population of the city of Atlanta. So it's not a huge place. But it turns out that it's home to robust ecosystems of monsters from cryptozoology, myth, and folklore. To find out more about this overstuffed creature container, we're joined by Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Oman, creators of the new book, Connecticut Cryptids, A Field Guide to the Weird and Wonderful Creatures of the Nutmeg State. This is a fun and informative collections of legends, lore, and more. Links will be in the show notes, but let's just get right to the Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Oman. Yes. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. So this is cool. Uh, So first of all, uh, behind the scenes, the listeners won't know this until we tell them right now. It's like, we had a hard time getting this to work. We had a bunch of booking conflicts mm. and, and health issues and whatnot. And even I as we speak, it was yeah. ghosts and demons and spirits that were keeping us apart. The cryptids were keeping <laughs> us apart. Yeah, something supernatural, definitely. 
But uh, now we're all here. We're, we're so grateful to be able to, to chat with you guys. Absolutely. And you have put together a wonderful book that we want to recommend to our listeners. And it's called Connecticut Cryptids, A Field Guide to the Weird and Wonderful Creatures of the Nutmeg State. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. Was it hard to get out the door? We worked on it for quite a while. Um, it was about three years from start to finish from the point that I started doing the research on it. Uh, Val came aboard, um, you know, us getting the first draft done, revisions done, all the illustrations, um, having a graphic designer do the layout, cover design. So, yeah, about gotcha. three years from start to finish. Well, the out, the outcome looks really nice. It's a very good looking Oh, book, thank you. So. It does. Thank you. And I, I just want to ask about the nutmeg state because I've heard of nicknames like the sunshine state and the peach state. Uh, but the nutmeg state, what's the story behind that? Ooh, now you're going to be putting me on the spot. Do you remember the, <laughs> the nutmeg state story? It, it, I, I think it has something to do with people making, selling fake, fake nutmeg, nutmeg, right? Like, we don't <laughs> actually grow nutmeg in Connecticut. Like, we're not known for nutmeg, but oh, I think... I didn't expect this. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, people were selling fake nutmeg and, like, so you know... it's more like nutmeg. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We haven't been asked that before. Yeah. I, mean, I should have brushed since we used it as the subtitle of the yeah. book. Should have brushed up on the history. Well, I Connecticut thought, has yeah, a few I, nicknames because we're also the Constitution State because right. we had one of the first constitutions which was hidden in the charter oak during colonial times and there's a whole story that goes along with that too <laughs> no well i just assumed that connecticut was famous for its nutmeg production i'm looking at the state library for connecticut and there's a thing that says the sobriquet the nutmeg state is applied to connecticut because its early inhabitants had the reputation of being so ingenious and shrewd that they were able to make and sell wooden nutmegs. Oh, yeah, doesn't that sound good. About right. That <laughs> sounds wild. I don't. I, that's uh, that's so funny. Uh, you know, here I'm in Pete State, where I just, for the record, we apparently are not the leading state for producing peaches. I think that goes to South Carolina. So it's oh. a, these these state names suddenly, I'm a little skeptical mm, of all wrong. of this. <laughs> My goodness, yep. there's another episode. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. I, I assume, Karen, you felt the same way that I was just kind of overwhelmed when looking at your book that a state as small as Connecticut could have such a large. Mm -hmm. It's a rich cryptid field of monsters. Yeah, it's just oh, yeah. Oh, you've got a lot of entries in here. It was kind of surprising to us as well. When I first started doing the research, um, I didn't know what form the project was going to take. Uh, I knew some of the bigger stories that Connecticut is home to, like the Black Dog of the Hanging Hills and the Winstead Wildmen. And I knew there were possibly some others out there. So I was like, well, let me do the research and see where it leads. You know, maybe it'll be a blog. Maybe it will be enough to fill a book. And as I started contacting historical societies and collecting these stories, it really became clear quite quickly that uh, there was enough to fill a book. I'm as surprised as you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I counted about 40 cryptids or more. It's just remarkable. Yeah, it's a it's a good cross section of the state as well because I had we have it kind of arranged geographically by region, and we have representation in every part of the state. For listeners, uh, so we have listeners. We, you know, we're a pretty skeptical podcast. I found your book to be very lighthearted and whimsical and fun, uh, but just to set listeners' expectations, if they go to buy the book, do you see yourselves as more skeptical or believers, or where do you fall in this? And what's a, what's a certificate encrypted field observation or certificate encrypted <laughs> illustrative works? Are those yes. real? What? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a work of fiction and whimsy. Ah. Um, <laughs> we we kind of we kind of wanted to have the the characters of of Pat and Val be like separate from ourselves, so we kind of added a little bit of fantasy to it. Um, which I think is appropriate considering both Pat and I consider ourselves skeptics. Um, I mean, I know I personally, I, I love cryptids. I, you know, I, I have been interested in them, like even before I started this project. Um, but I had, I go into these stories with like a very healthy dose of skepticism. Although I would, I would love to see something that I can't explain. Um, and I think there are some stories in, in the book that definitely do feel like, wow, maybe this is something that we haven't discovered yet. And maybe this is something cryptid, you know? Oh, well, we like that approach. That definitely fits in with the show. But uh, I want to hear about your cryptid research-related injuries because I understand <laughs> <laughs> that one resulted in an amputation uh, while the other was buttocks-related but didn't have anything to do with aliens. <laughs> Tell us no, about that. <laughs> nothing, nothing to do with aliens and all to do with uh, figments of our imagination and the, the kind of fictional versions of... Uh, of us in the in the book, uh, like Val said, we as we were editing the book, uh, there was a, a feedback that we got and was consistent among several of the reviewers about how they wanted to bring more of quote unquote us into it, and so that was kind of our solution is was to sort of fictionalize ourselves or the versions of ourselves in the book and you kind of get almost uh, a through narrative with the um with the note cards that are presented <laughs> at, each chapter, like at the end yeah. of each chapter as we sort of go through and do our research I, I like that especially the one that had the coffee cup rings on it Th those are great <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know th Very those cool. were those were a relatively late edition of the book and i feel like i had so much fun doing them because I was like, all right, well, I got to do one for every chapter and and I don't want them all to be the same and just a note card with writing on it. So let me see what kind of fun stuff I can do with them. Yeah, it, it became a very fun, creative exercise. Speaking of illustrations, I saw that there were some very cool illustrations in here. And now are those real? Are those based on actual things you saw in real life? <laughs> um. <laughs> In all seriousness, so tell tell us about the illustrations because they're they're fun, they're whimsical, they are sometimes a little creepy. They're they're neat. Uh, t t what went into the illustration decisions? 
Thank you. I appreciate that, first of all. And um, I I had a lot of fun with the creepy ones. Those ones were my my favorites to do, like the the Mystic Pigman and the Jewett City Vampires. Um, I I had a lot of fun with those ones um, in particular, um, just because I've, I'm into the kind of macabre aesthetic. But um, I... I had a lot of fun with the the entries that were more like I think you said like whimsical um and really kind of fantastical um because the ones that were kind of based more in reality um weren't weren't as as thrilling to me I guess uh it like there, there's a couple of them like there's like the black fox there's a black dog there's the white wolf and they're all just kind of dogs or wolves or or whatever. And so it was it was kind of challenging making normal creatures look extraordinary. Um, so I definitely I I struggled with those a lot more than I did the the super fantastical beast, which is kind of funny because I was kind of not using a reference for a lot of those ones, but I I found it more challenging to work with the ones that I actually was using a reference for. Neat. And I, I'm wondering what kind of criteria uh, did these creatures have to meet to be considered a cryptid? So you've got 40-something cryptids, and some of them are pretty out there. So Perry Boney comes to mind, the, I guess, fairy man that could speak to animals? Yeah, when we were setting the kind of parameters of the book, we knew that we mostly wanted to focus on stories related to creatures in some way or another. Uh, mm -hmm. Connecticut has a really rich tradition, rich tradition of ghost stories. And there are dozens and dozens of books about Connecticut ghosts and hauntings, some more famous than others. So we knew for the most part that we wanted to focus on creatures and less so on ghosts, hauntings, right. or things that were definitely human-related. Mm -hmm. But as we kind of learned, as we learned more about cryptozoology and, uh, and everything that that entailed, those lines sometimes get very blurred. So some right. people consider UFOs a kind of cryptid. Some people don't. Some people mm -hmm. consider fey creatures cryptids, and some don't. So it's definitely a bit of a fuzzy category, but we knew that sure. we mostly wanted to focus on things that were not human or no longer human. So that's right. why things like Perry Boney fit in, because there's the suggestion that he was some kind of fairy creature, that he wasn't human, that he kind of stepped into our realm for a little while and ran his little store. The interesting character indeed. Yeah. The raccoon illustration is really good too with the with him with the raccoon. That's neat. I love everything about that story. That's my favorite story from the book is is the Perry Boney chapter. So Oh really? Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with the illustration too. So yeah, that's a very I highly recommend that chapter. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's it's a great story. Yeah, it is. It's interesting because it sort of like merges with fairy lore, but also it reminds mm -hmm. me sort of like a East Coast Grizzly Adams who could talk to the animals. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of neat. <laughs> Bit of everything. Um, 
I, a surprising number of uh, mermaids in Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, uh, mermaids seem so implausible, but yet they still, people still, as recently as just a few years ago, were saying that they were real animals. And, of course, there was that uh, Mermaids the Body Found uh, Animal Planet sort of nonsense documentary. But can you tell us a little bit about mermaids in Connecticut, uh, especially the Stratford Point Lighthouse uh and uh, there was another one too, um, the Lordship Mermaids. Yeah, T- tell us about mermaids in Connecticut. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now these are these are no nonsense Yankee mermaids. These aren't like those lazy <laughs> Southern mermaids sitting around on their porches. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the 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 mermaid at the Stratford Point Lighthouse uh, was seen by the lighthouse keeper. And he claimed to his dying day that he that mermaids lived off of Stratford Point, that he saw them often uh, when he was on his shift at the lighthouse. Uh, During his lifetime, he was backed up by both his assistant lighthouse keeper and his wife. Uh, who who corroborated his story and said, "Oh yes, there are there are merfolk living off the coast of Connecticut." But uh, the lighthouse keeper, his and his name was Theodore Judson, by the way. He also claimed to have nearly caught a a mermaid once, and it, it regrettably slipped out of his grasp. But as a consolation prize, she happened to drop her hairbrush. Yeah. During her escape. And he had a whole story for how the mermaids got their fashion accessories. He said that they would take things from the cabins of sunken boats, and that's where they got their hairbrushes and stuff. And he he supposedly had the hairbrush on display at the lighthouse for anyone who doubted his story. But what I thought was so wonderful about this particular story was that Theodore Judson was fairly fairly well known in his time in Connecticut uh, enough so and it, he was he was the lighthouse keeper for long enough that he had a, a kind of storied career in Stratford and he was so well known that it, he warranted a obituary in the New York Times when he died and the obituary mentioned the mermaid story something along the lines of Friends never could get him to recant the mermaid tale or something mm. like that. So Wow. That's neat. Yeah, he was he was quite he was quite the character. Now does the the hairbrush survive? Uh I wish I knew. Yeah. It, the the hairbrush kind of disappears after Theodore retires. Nothing mm. else is said about it or heard about it. Um I just, yeah, I, 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 I wish help. we knew where it was today. <laughs> I, well, you know, having seen The Little Mermaid about 3,000 times uh, <laughs> with my kids, <laughs> yeah. I can't help but imagine that it's really a fork, you know? <laughs> See, and I always kind of imagine, like, this, like, metal hairbrush, but it's all encrusted in yeah. barnacles and, like, <laughs> maybe a little Ugh. rusty. Nice, and, yeah. nice. <laughs> 
saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So Connecticut just seems to be so chock full of cryptids and you, you even have big cat sightings. So they're, they're fairly common around the globe and, and we've spoken about them a lot over the years ourselves uh, here on the show. But I was intrigued by the killer cat case. So could you tell us a bit about that and, and what makes it so compelling? Yeah, absolutely. The The killer cat uh, follows the kind of same sort of story arc that a lot of these tales do and something was happening in this part of Connecticut where folks were were losing their livestock maybe had pets go missing a bit and people were saying oh well it's a mountain lion oh well maybe it's a, a big cat that escaped from a zoo other people were saying it's a dog other people were saying you know it's a lynx or a bobcat and then they would be refuted by others who said no it's way too big for one of those things and it kind of captured the whole imagination of this town for several months in you know this whole period between its biggest activity was in 1959, but it was first seen a few years earlier. And so, yeah, people um, people were desperate to find out what it was, and and um, kids would put up wanted posters on the light poles. I think I found uh, articles about that in the Hartford Current where. Uh, they would put wanted the killer cat and things like that. But uh, it's, it's interesting because it, it ties into this whole thing about big cats being in Connecticut and our department of energy and environmental protection says that there's no breeding population here, Mm -hmm. but dozens of people spot them every year. And I had to laugh because I was listening to one of your previous episodes, and I'm sorry, I don't recall which one, 
but you were talking about the same phenomenon in Pennsylvania. Yep. And I was like, yeah, we, we have the same thing in Connecticut. People see mountain yeah. lions mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. People <laughs> see them, people report them. And the Department of Natural Resources says, nope. Yep. <laughs> Not a thing. Copycats. So, yep. I, I mean, I think uh, I think people are looking for, they need some DNA, they need some good trail cams, you know, something. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I yeah. Know, yeah, you're absolutely right. It reminded me immediately of Pennsylvania. So, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Are people as um, adamantly and vociferously trying to prove the case? Because in, in, in Pennsylvania, it's downright hostile uh, how people who think they're really there uh, sort of conflict with the state officials. I, I mean, how would you characterize it, Val? I feel like it's almost more of like a kind of conspiracy theory mm. feeling here. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's like aggressive. I. I'd say there's some people who are quite passionate about it, um, yeah. but, you know, not to the point of, like, mass hysteria or anything. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like, kind of like a conspiracy type thing makes sense to me. Like, yeah. they're they're out there and, and the government doesn't want it. it, it well, what's, what's <laughs> funny is I, I think it has its roots in plausibility yeah. in that. People mm-hmm. believe that they're out there, but the the government doesn't want to recognize them or recognize that there are uh, a breeding population in Connecticut because then it would entail certain protections, which would require, you know, a whole bunch of work and all of that. <laughs> Did I just hear a cat? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of our cats. Yeah, yeah, me. but it's it's very on point. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you for your input. You you are not a large cat. Yeah. You are a small house cat. Um, oh. yeah. So, yeah, it, I, I feel like it has its roots in plausibility because people say they're out there. But if the government acknowledges it, then they would have to be uh, protected and everything that that entails. So I feel like, yeah, it's, it's more of a conspiracy theory type of thing. Right. Yeah. Now... now some of this uh, research involved field work, right? So uh, what what kind of uh, evidence were you able to pull together for any of these claims? I'm especially thinking here about the Winstead wild man. But were you, were you able to do any uh, work there and find real evidence yourself? We, we went to a number of the locations. What were some of the places? That yeah, I, I mean, I went to locations. Um, I mean, I just enjoy hiking and being outdoors i know pat does too but um downs road monster that one comes to mind um i actually went down downs road to get an idea of like the setting for that and um that illustration actually the all the the um the trees and shrubs and stuff that is i you know i i did an illustration of the woods in that road so yeah um that's that's the kind of research I did. Like I, you know, obviously my portion of the book is very visual. So uh, researching just the kind of natural landscape was was important for me. Um, again, unfortunately, I didn't find anything, you know, that felt very cryptid to me. But I saw a lot of very pretty scenery. So that's that's always a good well, thing. If you don't mind a quick yeah. follow up, is I've been to Connecticut and the area that I went to was just one town after another bleeding, you know, seamlessly into the next with a, a bunch of wonderful people and wonderful pizza places. But I, <laughs> what, what, 
is there is there some rural areas still remaining in Connecticut? Like where 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 do where do these monsters hide in in the sort of the the wild? What are the wilds of Connecticut like? Um, well, I mean, it's it's definitely not like the wilds of like Pennsylvania or yeah. like you know anywhere in the South or any. It is highly populated, but we do have like the quiet corner of of Connecticut. Yep. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of farmland and things like that. Um, even where Pat and I live in Naugatuck, we have the Naugatuck State Forest, which is massive. And it spans like three towns. Yeah, it spans yeah. three towns. Um, and it's gorgeous. There's there's a lot of really beautiful hidden gems in Connecticut. Pat and I are are we're nutmeg for life. You know, we, <laughs> we will, we will defend the state until we die, <laughs> whether or not it's warranted. I don't know, but there are a lot of natural places in Connecticut. If, if you're like willing to look and certainly places where it would be plausible for a cryptid to live. To, to kind of go back to the, the research thing, um, I, one of the places I went to was the cemetery in Jewett City, where the Jewett City vampires story took place. And what I think is so interesting about that whole story is that, I guess, prior, the, my understanding of how this all played out was that prior to the 1990s, there was this whole idea that this great New England vampire panic had happened where people were disinterring their loved ones after they had died because tuberculosis was spreading and they thought it was a vampiric disease. And the only way to protect yourself was to do certain purifying rites on your dead relatives. But there was no evidence in this regard that this had happened. It was all kind of hearsay and newspaper reports and that kind of thing. When the Jewett City Vampires story first began in the 1990s when the graves were first discovered and uh, the archaeological part of that research began, um, the state archaeologist at the time got in touch with this expert from Rhode Island who was um, well known in this subject area and come to find out that the Jewett City vampires story and the graves that they uncovered are to this day the only archaeological evidence that they found that this actually did happen, which is why it was very exciting for a lot of yeah. those researchers to finally have that proof to put with all of these kind of rumors that this had been going on in the 1800s. And as a kind of coda to that, DNA research has gotten so good over the past 30 years since these bodies were discovered that every few years they make new discoveries about them. So it just happened recently that even though this was first uncovered in the 1990s, DNA research has gotten so good that they've recently been able to do like a facial reconstruction of what one of these people might have looked like. They were able to use genealogy data banks uh, to find a likely identity for this person. So I thought that was really cool in terms of a story in which kind of evidence was found, although maybe not in the way that people thought. 
Now, this is the case where children playing in a construction site found the bodies, right? Correct. Yeah. Children were playing near a construction site and uh, part of the hillside, I think, gave way under loose soil and it uncovered uh, what was essentially just, um, you know, a local gravesite, a local unmarked gravesite. But but randomly, it was the vampiric burial that they had found. <laughs> that, that was one of the ones that, yeah. They, yeah, that was absolutely one of the ones that they found. I think there were three at least three or four and they belong to multiple families, but the one in question was marked JB on the, on the uh, casket. That's, with brass that's short for just buried. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I think Ken Fader is uh, a friend of the show and he's from Connecticut. And I believe one of his colleagues was the archeologist who, uh, quite literally dug in on this case. So yeah, I'll have to, mm. we probably should do a whole episode on that. That's a quite a good story. The archeologist was Nicholas Bellantoni and uh, yeah, he had, he had quite the storied career yeah. when he was the state archeologist. Oh, well uh, we are getting towards the end of the show, but you've told us about vampires and uh, Connecticut has lake monsters and hybrid creatures like the goat man and the pig man. Are there any other cryptids that our listeners should know about? from Connecticut. Well, I think one of my favorite stories and one of the ones that's lesser known is the old Saybrook blockheads. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how the, the lines between these things are kind of get blurred. And this is actually a UFO story, but it had to do with this, this woman whose name was Mary Starr. And she was incredibly well-educated, well-traveled. She spoke, spoke multiple, multiple languages, did some incredible work during World War II. And it just so happened that one night later in her life, she had this encounter with these creatures in her backyard. And she didn't tell anybody about it for a year afterwards, where she finally kind of reported it to a UFO group. And it, it was just kind of this one part, one fascinating part of what was also a very, very fascinating life. So I, I love that story. And I think that's really fascinating. I think she's really fascinating. And uh, I, I'd love folks to read that chapter. Well, we touched on my personal favorite, which is Perry Boney. Um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I know you also kind of mentioned, oh, well, the Mystic Pigman is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The, yeah, there's there's so many. It's just it's hard to pick. But um, the Mystic Pigman is, I I think one of the more iconic ones that kind of gets overlooked sometimes. Um, and it it takes place in Mystic, which is a very iconic Connecticut, you know, seaside town. I've been there. Um, yeah, hey. yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? <laughs> yep, Mystic Pizza. Last time we were just in Mystic, and I still to this day I'm I'm. I shouldn't be saying this on air, but I've not tried Mystic Pizza. <laughs> I haven't. Oh. Um, I know it's 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 a travesty. But um, the Mystic Pig Man is um, when it, is that from the sixties? Seventies. The seventies. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was this uh, reported sighting of of uh, a man uh, by the drawbridge who had the head of a pig, and he was allegedly seen drowning a woman. 
and um, just the the visuals of that story um, for me, uh, it you know you can make a whole horror movie on that, <laughs> and it would be fantastic. Set it in Mystic, Connecticut. It it could be a blockbuster hit. <laughs> <laughs> so I I really like that story. Yeah, I, I I've had a weird. Um fear of pig-headed people for a long time like a completely irrational and weird thing but it's like uh i remember uh some friends of mine you know growing up in high school they they were always joking about it because what a strange thing to be afraid of you know because it's not like a thing you run into real life and then now recently my kids have been watching this cartoon demon slayer and then one of the heroes of the show wears a boar's head mask and it's really turned me around i've uh... <laughs> But I, I'm still I'm still sort of fascinated by pig-headed people and pig people. Um, um, it was like House on the Borderlands from years ago. Anyway, just lots of reasons. Uh, pigs pigs are scary sometimes. They, they can. Yeah, we've done some shows on that. We have. And then, of course, I still eat the sausage. I'm Hogs. not afraid. Yeah. So maybe that's why I'm afraid of them. Maybe because I'm afraid they're going to make me sort of turn pay, on you pay the toll. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Better beware. Basic marketing question. Where can people find your book and your other work? And what's next? What are you working on? Well, people can find the book anywhere where books are sold, as the saying goes. Uh, <laughs> it is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. If folks have a local independent bookstore that they like to support, they can ask the bookstore to order it. It should be available through a major distributor. Uh, and they should be able to get it special ordered. Uh, same thing with, I mean, my previous work. Uh, I have also have a novel out. It's a young adult middle grade sci-fi novel that is also available wherever books are sold. And we can link to all those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And uh, as for what's next, well, right now I think we're kind of just spreading the word about Connecticut cryptids. We're doing lots of events. Um, we're also collecting stories along the way. I don't know it, what is going to become of those. There were a few that we've learned about since the book has been released. That oh yeah yeah maybe you know maybe there will be a revised edition in the future in which we add additional chapters or something like that. But. Neat. Yeah, I think right now we're kind of just riding the wave. Yep. Yeah, and enjoying <laughs> enjoying talking to folks about it really. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Nice. Well, we've certainly enjoyed talking with you, but the the time has come to ask you our signature question. You know what's what's coming. So Pat and Val, what are your favorite monsters? You go first. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite monsters. Um hmm. I think I would probably have to go with, I think, vampires, honestly. For me, I think it's going to be vampires. Um, I think there's just there's a lot you can do with the genre. Um, it can be really, really scary or horrifying, but it can also be kind of sexy. I was going to say, do you so, like the sexy yeah. vampires or do you like the Nosferatu yeah. ugly, scary vampires? I, I like the ugly, scary ones, yeah. the, like Nosferatu. Yeah, like that's. Too. That is that's my kind, but I I appreciate yeah. the, the what you can do with the genre. So <laughs> very flexible. <laughs> Good choice. 
For me, since I, since I am a lifelong sci-fi fan, I will say aliens are my favorite monsters. I swear I thought you were going to say space vampires. <laughs> <laughs> space, space, that, that would be a new one. That one 80s space vampire movie. <laughs> there, well, I, there, there's, there's that one. I know the one you're talking about. And there's also, there was one on Buck Rogers in the 70s. <laughs> Ooh, that one. Really? <laughs> Super creepy. It was very Nosferatu in space. It was very much so, yeah, Ooh, yeah. very cool. Bizarre. Yeah, no, I think I would go with Aliens just because, yeah, I've always loved sci-fi. Always been a big sci-fi fan. Nice. You could do so much with, with, with different kinds of aliens. It, it, like the sky's the limit. Quite literally, <laughs> what? Sky, yeah, quite literally. No fun intended. Totally unintentional. Good solid answers. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about your book. This is really cool. I think listeners will yeah. really dig this. It's a it's a surprising collection of of uh, creatures from a, a state that just doesn't mm. seem like it's big enough to hold them all. But there it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so so much for having us. Yes, this was you. wonderful. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Oman, creators of the new book, Connecticut Cryptids, a field guide to the weird and wonderful creatures of the nutmeg state. Links to their work will be in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. We always say thanks for spending time with us, but that's only because we totally mean it. Thank you so much. Monster House presentation.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.